Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. All right, welcome to another episode of Zoom Cron. I am your host, Travis Mateer, and I am excited to be back after taking a week off. Um, it was a forced vacation from Zoom Cron. I try and post an episode every week. Um, on Tuesdays, and that has been a schedule I have kept to very diligently, even if I'm not putting out new content. It might be an old an old podcast from the other platform I was using, but um, because of storage issues and tec technical stuff that I had to get some assistance, so thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, my technical support out there. You know who you are. I greatly appreciate the fact that my, my old computer, which in laptop years is about a thousand years old, um, now has a little bit more storage space and a little bit more life so I can continue on this on this device where I got my workflow. I'm kind of familiar with how things are laid out. So I'm very excited, very excited. Um, I've got a couple recorded conversations backing up. So this one I recorded on February 9th, and it is with podcaster Doug McKenty. Also, he's a writer, and he's been writing some essays. And those essays that caught my attention were specifically about a feud that has erupted. Um, it's actually been developing for months and months and months. Um, and it's between Derek Burroughs and Allison McDowell, two people that really have a lot of common ground in terms of their, their overall concerns about a sort of technocratic dystopia, dystopia future in which um, these you know, psychotic oligarchs from like the World Economic Forum and other major globalist institutions are basically plotting our, um, our humanity's enslavement. So it's unfortunate that two people that uh, really have quite a lot to agree on um, have suddenly been in this situation where there's no direct dialogue happening. Um, there are people that support both of them. There are plenty of people out there that actually appreciate both of their research um, and get kind of sad and a little dejected about the fact that this feud has now gotten to the point where Alice McDowell reached out to, I think, everyone attending Derek Bros's Greater Reset 3, um, trying to compel them to not participate, um, to the point where Ka Catherine Austin Fitz um, actually responded, looked at all the evidence that Alice McDowell was alleging um, there, tainted Derek Bros, but you know what? I'm not going to start talking about this because that is why I recorded a two-hour conversation with Doug McKenty. Um, it was a excellent, excellent time that I that I had. I hope Doug had as much fun as I did, um, and I'm sure he did because he's in Northern California. He had to actually come out as a conspiracy theorist, um, and because he was working in radio in a place where. Yeah, his his political beliefs weren't weren't really in line with the environment that he found himself in. And the the first essay on this feud took a look at the ideological divide that might be kind of fueling this this feud. Um, but we really get past that um, initial look that Doug took. And he's got, you know, a three part essay and then an, an, an addendum that he has, which I will provide links to when this thing finally gets up. 
um, which is going to be, I think, kind of late Tuesday night. I actually might just put this up Wednesday morning. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But first, I got to balance the file. And in order to do that, I had to have storage. And now I have the, the appropriate amount of storage. So I will stop talking. Here we have Doug McKenty. Thank you for listening and stay tuned next week. Um, I'm hoping to have a uh, two-part conversation with Greg Sestero coming up next week. Maybe not. We'll see. Stay tuned. All right. We are going with another episode of Zoom Cron, and that's short for the Chronicles of Zoom Town. And with me today is Doug McKenty, someone that I am just recently becoming familiar with. Um, and that's because of an unfortunate few that has emerged that I've been tracking pretty closely as, as closely as I can. And I've really been looking for some opportunities uh, to have some conversations around this around this topic. And um, after reading Doug's three part essay and addendum on Substack and listening to his interview with Allison McDowell, someone that I have interviewed as well, um, and getting a sense of where his approach and kind of perspective has come from, especially when it comes to uh, respecting a person's intention and uh, really dialogue, a very simple concept that's actually not as uh, easy to put into practice as people find out when they try and have dialogue around difficult issues. And so today we're going to discuss the, the feud between two people, but really it's more of a, um, there's different lenses we can look at, ideological being one of them. And I'm just really excited to have Doug here from Northern California mm -hmm. to discuss cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies and you know where things are all going in this crazy world so doug thank you so much for for joining me yeah absolutely thanks for having me on appreciate it so for, for folks that are not aware of your 10 plus years podcasting your history with radio um, maybe just do a quick introduction um for my meager audience that i'm hoping to continue to grow um, <laughs> right but, I hear but, that. Um, explain where you're coming from and, and sort of how you got to be doing this this gig sure uh, I started uh, at my local radio station, gosh, probably about 2005, uh, initially hosting a uh, open lines program. I th I'm thinking about actually starting another one. Taking live calls? Soon. Mm -hmm, exactly. Oh, Just fun. taking live calls and, and having dialogue. So yeah. I actually loved it. It was kind of crazy. You know, anyone could call up and say anything that they wanted, but... Um, you know, just in terms of the democratic process and the concept of having like an open lines conversation with the community, I thought was so important. So that was really fun. Uh, a few years after that, I started hosting my own show called The Thursday Morning Report, which was I was trying to, you know, I had kind of gotten turned on to alternative narratives after uh, 9 11 and had been researching what I now call populist history. I think. Instead of calling it conspiracy theory, it's a little bit nicer to give it a, a term that's less uh, derogative. Well, you um, actually kind of explained in, in your three part uh, series as you're giving a background on, on yourself that mm -hmm. you actually kind of felt like you had to come out at, at, at a point as a conspiracy theorist, consciously knowing the blowback you were going to get. And maybe that's partly because you had some mainstream media uh, exposure through radio and you knew that there was going to be consequences for taking on that pejorative. Right, exactly. I mean, I live in a very progressive community here in Northern California. The radio station was an NPR station. And uh, so both my conspiracy theory angle and then my libertarianism, I've been a libertarianism since before I went to college. Uh, yeah. And uh, and that has only grown over time, although I now more identify as a kind of a left libertarianism. I think there's a real way to harmonize the left and the right um, part of the whole really divisive paradigm. Um, but you still have to allow people 
individual freedoms, you know, they're going to make choices you're not going to like, but, yeah. uh, but I, um, I've come to respect leftist views about making, uh, cooperatives, workers, co-ops organizing, however you want, frankly, you can organize your community, however you like to, you know? And so I don't see an argument or a conflict between the, my libertarian views and most leftist views. I just consistently seem to be getting a lot of pushback from the leftists uh, who yeah. seem to fear that living in a free society would ultimately result in something that looks like this one, you know, just <laughs> like, I don't know how they, they come to that conclusion, which is why it's frustrating and why I wanted to kind of come out. And that's what happened uh, at the local radio station. I really felt like there was a lot of, um, a lot of censorship behind the scenes. Um, not only the conspiracy theory perspective was, was heavily shunned, um, but uh, libertarian perspectives were also really, really poo-pooed. And I felt like I had to um, kind of suppress or repress my own authenticity uh, in order to kind of get by. And when I did finally come out uh, against this censorship and I wanted to see a lot more community input into the programming, uh, you know, I ended up losing my show. I kind of knew it was going to happen. Very yeah. passive aggressive. This passive aggressive behavior I've noticed over and over again. Uh, which is why, you know, at this point, when I saw the conflict between Derek Bros and Allison McDowell, it just typified like everything that I'd experienced. And so uh, I wanted to write about it and I wanted to kind of start a, a real large community dialogue amongst those of us who can see through a lot of the propaganda, the corporate, I call it the corporate government narrative that's so yeah. dominant and say, hey, why are we fighting with each other? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, from the very beginning at the local radio station, uh, the show was, I, I just kind of came to the realization early on uh, with my 9-11 research, uh, this concept that the left-right paradigm was really basically designed by the upper classes to divide and conquer. It just made so much sense to me. Yeah. Like we are just constantly arguing back and forth with each other about issues that we can't, we're not ever going to change. I mean, these rich guys, the oligarchs, they keep rolling over us. They, they push whatever agendas they want. We argue incessantly back and forth about it and accomplish nothing. And so I've been trying to cross this divide for a long, long time. And uh, I thought it was so unfortunate to see this conflict explode on the scene. I mean, there's so few of us that can see through uh, this mass propaganda campaign that it's like, we can't. Why expend energy fighting each other? You oh, know? It, we, it hurts. It really yeah. does hurt. Um, and I I feel that hurt in your words. Um, and I identify and experience that same hurt because um, I like everyone I have I have seen um, in this feud maintains the respect for the research that Allison McDowell has brought to the conversation. Right. Um, it blew me away the first time I, I heard her because where I'm coming from. So I definitely used to identify as a progressive. Missoula is a very liberal uh, community in mm -hmm. a pretty red state. We've been pretty as a state known for our purple politics. Um, but I definitely went to the University of Montana, created a writing major, uh, worked 10 years in the nonprofit sector. Um, and so in my desperation working with uh, shelter resistant people on the streets of Missoula um, and starting to understand the homeless industrial complex that was emerging and how the quote unquote progressives were just these like third, third, third rail new party Democrats 
um, that use homeless people as shields to hide their their schemes behind. You know, I started and then, of course, I was very anti-war. Obama, I, I teared up when I saw him in 2008. I thought he was going to stop the wars and then right. just drone the fuck out of everything. And so my disillusionment <laughs> from the progressive side was was a slow incremental awakening. Um, and it really came from my boots on the ground experience with with people on the streets and actually trying to reform the system from the inside. And so when Allison came and said, hey, this desperation you're experiencing and this debt and all of this misery is going to be operationalized through technocracy and is going to be this like, you know, social credit system and this gaming gamification of the world and all this stuff. I was like, oh, my goodness, like it. It freaked me out to the to the point where in my own sort of assessment of, of the world now in this pandemic pandemic uh, sort of situation, I I'm really sensitive to fear and what is causing me to have a fear reaction. Um, and in my conversation with Allison, I remember mentioning crypto and her quick reaction. This was probably, I think, February 2021. And it kind of mm -hmm. shocked me. I was surprised because I was very open to this idea of decentralization and even like agorism taking in elements of um, technology and, and doing this like mixed mixed gray economy stuff and I didn't understand her reaction and then that was before this feud emerged and so as this feud emerged I was like okay these are the absolute people that should not be fighting each other right um, I, I didn't see it through a libertarian progressive dynamic yet at that point and I think that's in part what part of what's going on um but it I guess to come back to the hurt um it it we're it feels like a small community that's aware of this stuff. I am so happy I connect with people because there's not a lot of people now in, in my own community I can necessarily, you know, talk with about this stuff. Right. And so because it's so critical to to try and fight this centralized um, oligarch power on this, you know, physical and spiritual level, it hurts. So um, I guess maybe if there's a question in any of that uh, rambling that I tend to do, um, <laughs> What at what point did you decide that you wanted to get more involved in a direct line of communication? I mean, did you see the attempts at dialogue breaking down? Because I wanted to see some dialogue more between Derek Burroughs and Allison McDowell, and that seemed to break down for some reason. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was fascinating. Um, I uh, so I have been working on figuring out how to cross the left right divide for again, over, over 10 years, like we discussed. Yeah. And um, I've, I've actually on my show, you know, it's almost, it's funny. I wonder if I have a bigger audience. Um, and now I am more and more doing this because I, I haven't, I, I still kind of hold fast to my libertarian foundations, but I spent a lot of time. I've interviewed a lot of left-wing people uh, to try to get their point of view. I spent a lot of time on a Facebook page called Compassionate Anarchy, <laughs> where because I figured if I can go to the anarchist camp and and figure out the where the real polarization, like what is the what are the issues that really divide the left and the right and try to figure out, you know, is there a compromise? What's going on? You know, how can we figure out how to work together? I mean, you know, if you're an anarchist, it's the same thing. Like how, what is 1% of the population anarchist? Like, and you get on these pages and these anarcho-capitalists and anarcho-communists are just arguing with each other constantly, yep. Yep. Ne never accomplishing anything, never like moving forward from any place. And it's like, I mean, I remember because my introduction into anarchy was uh, with Murray Rothbard, uh, you know, from my, from my libertarian yeah. foundations. And I just, when I became an anarchist through him, it's, it's kind of how I identify. I mean, right now, as you know, from my uh, essays, 
I'm basically just advocating for decentralizing power. Like the, these ideological questions, I think, can be answered on a community level with people that you know having dialogue. Yes. Um, and I think if we all can just agree to decentralize power and work together on that, then we can leave these conversations for later. I mean, it's just like because we're not going to get over this. Um, but you know, my initial kind of identification with the fact that, yeah, I think we can have a society that really has no centralized authority like this. Uh, and I had no idea. I mean, for like 10 years, I had no idea that there were these anarcho-communists that wanted to fight with me about, you know, I, I was like, well, oh, I, you know, I've just left the left-right paradigm. And now I think that we need to just, you know, get rid of these uh, monopoly authoritarian systems. Um, and so when I first started meeting, you know, I, I remember the first time I met like another anarchist, I was so excited to talk to them. And then when I kind of mentioned Murray Rothbard, they were like, oh, you're one of those. And I was like, what? Interesting. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Like, yeah, totally shocked that it was like one of those like we're all anarchists. Right. I mean, and uh, and then once, you know, I got onto Facebook and got involved in the Facebook page, it was like, oh, my God. I mean, there's this just huge ideological conflict that's happening that's out yeah. of control there's no concept of like how do we unify against this governmental system that we all agree is not helpful uh in terms of human prosperity you know and so it's um well, it's always research Allison's research, um, and not to interrupt you, but to kind of mm -hmm. like continue things moving towards this this particular explosion sure. of divisiveness, you know, Allison's research seemed to offer this opportunity of of getting more people aware, and that awareness, I would, I guess, naively think, um, would would lend people an idea of the seriousness of what's at stake and um, the the dire necessity to find common ground and to leave some of your own maybe biases and hangups behind right. you know like put uh, put some of your shit aside to see right. where there could be opportunities and maybe um locally i just spent too much time because i worked with chronic homeless people that i didn't have the luxury of being ideological when you're actually trying to figure out how to get the guy to just shit himself on the sidewalk yeah. you know to figure out how to like fix this particular situation so ideology for me has always been kind of set aside in my day job but now that i've left that day job um and i'm trying to understand how to get things locally moving forward you know i see things like um you know this this energy in terms of anti mandates getting sucked up by trump qAnon stuff and i'm just like no no yeah. and so to see the allison derrick divide um kind of suck up more of this energy that's just divisive and gets people wasting time on screens instead of going to city council or their county commissioner's office and like figuring out who the sheriff is and and where where things are at with their own power structure you know it's been so maddening and frustrating and part of me it's gotten very um i guess maybe personally reactive in some ways where i'm just like okay allison are you a privileged you know mom in philadelphia um that right. you know like is there stuff you can do in philadelphia you know maybe like what why do you need to be going around using technology to get a platform just then to use technology to um start referring to derek bros as some kind of like you know, child exploiter. Um, and we will get to that aspect of things because as you are getting out there seeking dialogue with this long history of wanting and trying to get dialogue, um, your attempts to look at the ideological lens and, and some of the broader aspects of this particular feud get sucked into the, the specifics and details of what's being alleged. And it was really a off the cuff conversation or off the cuff comment that Derek Rose made to Catherine Austin Fitz that seems to be this like specific grain of irritation that's just not being 
pushed out um, quick enough so we can figure out the ideological stuff that might be fueling it. So right. Um, what, what, what in that um, would you like to respond to, Doug? Well, I mean, uh, I like you uh, around that time, uh, a year, year and a half ago, yeah. I interviewed Allison and then I, and I interviewed Derek. And, uh, you know, like I said in my essay, I think if you see my two interviews, because I, I, I do typically try to avoid these kind of ideological conflicts. If you look at those two interviews, you're going to see two people that almost entirely agree. Right. Uh, and then, you know, and then, um, and then as I got involved on social media, uh, you know, it became pretty clear. I mean, I could, I could tell by the vibe, of course, that Allison was more progressive oriented. And then Derek is clearly libertarian agorist. Uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. And um, so I could kind of see that at the beginning of it, after I did those interviews, and as I was getting more involved on social media, I was actually very excited. I thought this is a great healing opportunity to delve into this left-right divide and figure out how we as members of this populist movement, right? (laughs) Those of us that are kind of awake to the oligarchy and wanting to empower the people uh, and decentralize power away from the oligarchy, the upper classes, uh, we have this opportunity to have this conversation. And um, I mean, I really, because this has been a passion of mine for so long, I, I bent over backwards. I mean, I was thinking about setting up like a debate between Allison and Derek. I approached Derek actually uh, really early on, said, hey, I just got turned on to this lady, Allison McDowell. I think you should have her on one of your greater resets. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, he write, and he writes back. Oh, I've already talked to her. She's not interested because of the blockchain question. I was like, oh, you know, that's too bad. Uh, eventually, I went as far as to approach Jason Bosch, who's the, the host of many of Allison's interviews. Jason's a great guy. Uh, he was really open minded and we were going to produce a whole other show. We had a name for it beyond politics. Uh, I We produced one episode, which was just a conversation between me and him. I, I produced an interview for my show, The Shift um with with jason so that we could continue to have dialogue about um these opposing perspectives the the libertarian perspective versus this kind of progressive angle and um i was excited about producing that show with jason because we were specifically going to have people on that were you know from the left and from the right but were you, you know all kind of encompassed under this big tent of progressivism people who were more awake to the to the propaganda to the to the narratives the dominant narratives that yeah. um, appear to be untrue you know <laughs> about so many things manipulative um and we were going to really delve into it and unfortunately then jason backed out of that project um and then the thing with allison just continued to escalate up to the point where she actually, you know, attempts to derail Derek's work on the Greater Reset Three, and, and goes to um, reaches out to almost every single right. participant. Um, with it was it a presentation or what? What kind of um, material was well, she offering? I think she just sent them an email and okay. invited them to not participate because of this claim that Derek Rose was uh, engaging in and being an advocate for uh, child exploitation. Right. It's like you said on this 90 second comment uh, in this interview with Catherine Austin, Catherine Austin Fitz. And that to me was, was crossing a line. I mean, she's starting to uh, not just have a difference of opinion with Derek, but now, you know, affecting his work. Yes. Like, I mean, how, 
it was that that for me was kind of crossing a line in the sand. And that's when I decided I'd been up thinking about writing a blog anyway, getting more of my ideas out there. And I was like, well, this conflict, it's so typified this left right divide that I'd been trying to overcome throughout my podcasting career that I thought I could use that to frame you know, the beginning of this blog and, uh, and yeah. then kind of launch my ideas from there about how we can overcome this conflict and create unity. And, and uh, you know, Allison actually all came out with a video where she says she's not interested in unity. Um, oh, wow. I haven't seen that, but I did see Catherine Austin Fitz's her response. Um, I mean, she talked mm -hmm. about the amount of time that she spent really right. going through all of the evidence presented, right. um, all of the claims that Allison McDowell was making towards Derek Bros. Um, and Catherine Austin Fitz made a really strong response and, and just kind of like it helps, I would hope, put things to bed. But if, if there is no interest from from Allison's side about unity, then it starts becoming let's start examining your side, Allison McDowell, and let's start examining people like Raul Diego that you're getting involved with. Because one of the most painful things that I have um, in terms of pieces of media and content out there, okay, because um, I'm a subscriber to Rockfin and I'm a huge supporter of Ryan Christian and uh, Whitney mm -hmm. Webb. They're doing some of the right. best work out there. They have been my lifeline to sanity when it comes to the last two years. And so when Whitney Webb goes on and, and details um, through showing evidence, personal evidence that was hard for her to do about Raul Diego um, and his role going from Mint Press, um, really, it sounds like from what she described, stealing cryptocurrency from her and then getting involved with Allison McDowell. Um, that seems to be one of the people behind the scenes that is is um, fueling in some way, maybe this divide. And I'm not sure how familiar sure. you are with that aspect. Yeah, of yeah. Things. But um, I mean, I, I think that Whitney reached out to Allison initially and said, hey, you know, I'd love to add your stuff to uh, Unlimited Hangout. Right. And uh, and then, of course, again, that all fell apart and the and the Diego thing happened. And it's yeah. just, uh, again, more more conflict and, and less uh, less dialogue. So, yeah, well, here's a, here, here's an interesting piece of information that you might not be familiar with. And this is just where things get so odd and weird for me sometimes because I I self-identify as a synchromistic. Right. So um, nice. my, in my journalism is is kind of gonzo. I'm out there as a part of the story, as a part of the narrative. Um, and I try and say that as a way to recognize my own involvement in potential biases. Right. Um, sure. But, you know, I've been involved in the Montana blogosphere for many years. I started blogging at four and 20 Blackbirds in 2010. And that blog got a little bit of attention when um, my co-blogger for uh, J girl actually got uh, captured some information from our county attorney that made it into John Krakauer's book about Missoula and the rape scandal that was happening. And so um, had actually a pretty good reputation as a blog back then, um, a lot of blog activity. Of course, then I got kicked off because I called Bernie Sanders a sheepdog and they didn't right. like that. So <laughs> um, I got myself in trouble. But one of the, the sort of uh, pernicious at the time um, commenters, uh, Mark Tokarski, I always say his last name wrong, but Mark has been in the blogosphere for longer than I have. And now he has a blog, or he's had a blog for many years, Peace of Mindful. And it's very mm -hmm. interesting because one of the contributors is Steffers and Steffers um, it was mentioned by Allison McDowell on her most recent higher side chat appearance. And so, um, you know, Steffers, I don't know much about sort of these dynamics. I know that I've been pretty critical of Mark getting sucked into the everything is fake uh, mentality. He's a big supporter or a big fan of Miles Mathis, and I'm not all that aware of that guy. But 
in this world of conspiracy theory, disinformation, controlled opposition, agents, provocateurs, you know, history of COINTELPRO, there's so much swirling around in the miasma. Um, I mean, at what point does does it have to be like, okay, if you're not going to enter in dialogue and really overtly be divisive in in saying unity is not for us, um, I mean, I, at what point do you just say, okay, we need to move forward in a constructive way for the pe- with the people that are willing to find alliances um, and, and it just keep at arm's length, not just maybe some of these people, but aspects of their research. Um, and and the, not that their research is not true, but that their research is part of this spiritual fear fog, okay? That um, if we need to be fighting stuff on the ground now, um, not just being afraid of the future uh, imposition of a technocratic society because right now my kids okay and i think we should get to this child exploitation thing now so i have mm-hmm. three kids they are already being groomed by these the sociopath tech, technocratic oligarchs right they already have you know screens they already had remote uh, learning pushed on them in this pandemic yeah. they're already going to build a metaverse with their minecrafting skills right um they're already interacting and commenting with people online that who knows if they're 50 year old creeps or actual you know young people. So um, in some sense, we're already here. We're already in this technocratic dystopia. Um, and, and in triaging this, you know, I don't have time for someone that doesn't live in my community that's creating division in the, in the broader, bigger picture arena. Um, I am putting a lot of effort into my own backyard, and that's where I think most people should put most of yep. their energy is in their own backyard. Um, and so at this point, you know, Allison's research made me afraid for a while. Um, I myself am away from alcohol and other things that I think compromise my, my ability to see things more clearly in my own sort of purpose. And so if she wants to engage in that divisiveness, she should just do that by herself with the people that are now part of her little tribe, her little cult. Um, and I'll start looking at it as the cult of Allison, um, because I'm not interested in divisiveness. I want to find alliances, whether that's with churches, um, uh, nonprofits that are willing to, to, you know, help me in my own local community. That's where I'm going to put my energy. Um, and it's just, it is sad. There's like a grieving process. I think you have to go through when you see so much potential um, in someone's work. And then to see that work kind of be operationalized in this really destructive, divisive way. So that's kind of where I'm at, but I tend to be sure. more reactive and emotional. Um, and I really like your writing and clarity on this. I think people should really read all three parts of Thanks. your essay and your addendum, but let's get into this idea of, um, you know, child exploitation, child sovereignty. Um, you know, you made a great comparison to this idea of Derek Bros's like comments. How is it any different than a kid doing a babysitting job? Right. You know, of course, we're all worried about what tech technology is doing to young people. I think that's a, I think most people are worried and concerned about that. Um, but his comments, when you just actually look at the specific comments he made, um, what is so different about a side gig a kid might be doing? Um, and, or, or working at the family store, for example, right. Yeah. Um, and not having child labor laws be the state coming in and dictating the degree to which a young person can get compensated for their own work. Well, I mean, ultimately where I fall on the child sovereignty issue is that I think that clearly it's the parent's choice. You know, the parent has to be the one that does the research on splinter lands, figures out if they think that, you know, playing a game like this, uh, this is the this is the game that that Derek was advocating for in the interview okay. with Catherine. Um, you know, uh, if 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 the data collection that Splinterlands is doing is is somehow connected to this larger technocratic machine, uh, and if uh, having the job 
or playing the game for some extra cash is, you know, kind of crossing the line into exploitation by this corporate monster, or is it just like a babysitting gig? I mean, that's, that's kind of the question. And, you know, the irony is (laughs) that I, in my initial, the reason why I had to write the addendum, I just went straight to the ideological divide because that's what I'd been observing for the last year and a half. Was that's where like, that's where your oh, mind was at, right? Yeah. And um, this and this was the issue that was so much important to me. And I do feel like I mean, clearly, Derek Bros does not advocate for for child exploitation. Right. I mean, this guy's been he's lived his whole life. He's written books. You know, he, he produces uh, content fighting the, the technocracy, uh, you know, for, for decades now, it's like, he's not he also, been... um, he, he left, he left his own substance abuse issues. Um, I mean, he's spoken right. a little bit about that and I have mad respect for people, um, yeah. that have had some level of, of dependency and have found a way to move forward and are inspiring other people in positive ways to become more active and involved in their communities. I mean, I mean, I find his, a lot of his work inspiring, although I'm not as familiar with it as mm-hmm. maybe I am with aspects of Allison's work. Well, I mean, ultimately, I think it's clear that his intention is not to exploit children. Right. And, right. Um, and, and so maybe he uh, was advocating for this particular game produced by this particular company that maybe, you know, a parent, I, and I agree. I mean, like I completely understand Allison's concerns about right. that particular situation. And so let's talk about it. And I think that through that dialogue, then a parent can you know, go and check out the, the conversation and, and then make the, the appropriate choice for their own child in their own, in their own situation. Right. And that's when you make the leap from no, you know, automatically on principle, this must be child exploitation. It's very black and white thinking to me. And then yeah. refusing to engage in the dialogue about it. Like, I just think that's unfortunate because then the parent has to go do the research for themselves. They can't, you know, they can't just, watch the conversation and get both sides of the issue. And, and, you know, that would be helpful yes. uh, to a parent that would have concerns about their child interacting with this technology in the modern age. I mean, it's clearly a problem and something that we all have to deal with. But my point is that it's a, it's an individual choice that yeah. parents make on a case by case situational level mm-hmm. and not, you know, some kind of broader, and this is why I thought it was an ideological issue because I think that, um, yeah, Allison has a tendency to take the, the information that she's getting and then place it within this paradigm, uh, this ideological paradigm where it's, it's very black and white to her. And then she's discounting the intentions of others like Derek Rose, who really wants to help kids, you know, figure out a way out of poverty. Uh, Derek might have been wrong about Splinterlands. I'm totally open minded to that. Allison presented a really strong argument that there are connections to this uh, financier out of Singapore who has connections to the WEF. So it's like, okay, uh, maybe I don't want my kid to be playing these Splinterlands games. Fair enough. You know, maybe Derek was wrong on that specific issue. Um, But to discount Derek's intentions uh, and, and then to sabotage his work, I felt again, was was crossing a line. And I thought to me, again, it was obvious that this was based on an ideological perspective that I thought skewed uh, Derek's point of view and discounted Derek's positive intentions yeah. for, the, for the whole comment. And, yeah. and I thought it was uh, unfortunate. Now, having said that, 
you know, I did use this conflict to frame the beginning of my blog because it was uh, so typical of my experience in dealing with these left-right paradigm conflicts, but I, I am happy to leave that uh, behind. I, I don't really want to get into the personality conflicts and, and yeah. as you say, like these ideological, I mean, Allison has every right to, to have her point of view and, and her, the people that listen to her work. Uh, other than, as you say, it's uh, disappointing to me because her, her work is so valuable uh, yeah. that she's not more open to uh, having a, a exposing that work to a broader audience that maybe has a different ideological background than, than well, she does. Exactly. And, you know, Derek Rose has been willing to engage in dialogue and really she hasn't. Um, you know, I, I was right. on Sam Tripoli. Sam Tripoli is really helping push Rockfin as a platform. Nice. Yeah. Um, and, and Rockfin is something I'm trying to get on because, you know, in this in this new world of media, I'm a content creator that um, is going against the local power structure, very hard to get advertising dollars locally. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to, in some ways, monetize my own content because I don't want to have a boss again. Um, I, I really want to continue doing what I love. I love doing this. I love talking to people. I love writing. I love creating art. Um, and so, you know, Rockfin and some of these other platforms are providing opportunities for people to continue doing their work. Someone like Jason Burmis, um, if it wasn't for Rockfin, you know, he's been pretty attacked right. with YouTube. Uh, Ryan Christian is one of the, I mean, it's crazy how Ryan Christian, um, a person that probably a lot of people have never heard of, is one of the most censored people because of how much amazing uh, sourcing and good information and their own sources he's using, right? And so it's like, if you become this uh, purist Luddite, what are you denying, not just your own audience, but your own mind in terms of the information that, that is constantly um, being put out there that we have to constantly be filtering and discerning, you know, what's real, what's not. And so, um, you know, I, I guess part of that, it's not just this um, sort of maybe cheap shots that are being taken, um, but it's also in some ways, you know, denying me the ability to try and get some financial compensation for content. Um, yeah. And, and it, that is so important. You know, I, I was reluctant early on to kind of be a subscriber for premium content. Um, but I don't know if you're familiar with like Monica Perez and Brad Binkley, the propaganda report. Um, they also come from a radio background and they do uh, a drive time news blast. And so if for people that, um, you know, cannot stand the media, but they, they have to be aware of the narratives that are being formed and the agenda that's being driven, um, I am so happy to support someone like Monica Perez and Brad Binkley at like the Patreon, you know, $20, right. $20 level, because you've got to find ways to support some of the people. I mean, it's an information war in addition to a spiritual war. Right. And, and so how, how, without looking at tools um, to possibly empower content creators, like how else are we supposed to be doing this? We're not, we're, we're closed off to mainstream media in a lot of ways. We're being attacked in so many weird asymmetrical ways. Joe Rogan is going to be like brought down and, you know, some of the um, stuff being done at that level is just pretty fascinating. So um, I guess, you know, as you moved from radio and moved into the podcast world, what's been some of your experiences in just trying to continue making this a living, making this a career? Um, have you run into some of those challenges in terms of making that that shift? I mean, your podcast is called The Shift. And, right. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I actually, um, you know, it's funny when I started when I started The Shift, I was initially giving it away for free. And now I do have a subscription and I keep about 30 or 40 percent of each interview out. And I ask for six bucks a month. Nice. Um, for the subscription package. Um, it, it's not exactly super lucrative. And sometimes I feel bad. I mean, I, I do feel actually I'd love to be able to give away everything for free. 
but a guy's got to eat. I mean, this yeah. is something that's just really kind of frustrating for me when I when I hear these people come from this ideological angle where they just kind of make these claims that all of this needs to be free. And if you're making any money, I mean, this is part of the what I would say mudslinging against Eric or the blockchain crew Yeah, uh, is that they're just trying to make money and cash in on this and that. And it's like, you know, I mean, I've spoken to Derek. It's not like he he's lived paycheck to paycheck almost his entire life. <laughs> like we're, yeah. we're all making huge sacrifices on that level to be able to do this. And so to me, like, you know, I was happy to get on, on Rockfin to be able to kind of monetize. Oh, I'm constantly looking for ways to try to monetize a little bit. I mean, we all need, I don't need a lot of money, you know, I'm not looking to get rich, <laughs> but it's like, we, again, we all got to eat. What do you want? All these yeah. content providers to be homeless. I got kids too, you know? Absolutely. Like, so I don't, I, I haven't understood any of that either. It's, it's kind of like, I'm glad that some people maybe have enough money that they don't have to, you know, make any money off of their content, but, um, you know, not all of us are in that same situation. And so figuring out ways to monetize is just part of the gig. I mean, I, and I, I don't think it's a really appropriate to kind of be judgmental about how people try to do that. Exactly. Um, I think maybe we could talk about the whole blockchain issue as well, because yeah. that was another, I mean, that's clearly another huge point of contention between Allison and Derek. Uh, Derek's been supportive of the blockchain concept really probably since the inception of Bitcoin, you know, 2009, 2010, he was already, I think on board. And, well, and let, me, uh, let me frame really quickly. Just, um, one of the, the big problems with, um, part of this feud is, is so many people are still very new to these ideas. I mean, this right. is a very new concept. Even people that have been in this for years, you know, struggle to understand these new coins that emerge and, and how blockchain really can, you know, be independent of, um, of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies and the metaverse now and all. I mean, there's so many moving oh, parts. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like this is just, there's a lot of people that are, they're afraid of entering this space anyways. They know they, they, they have to, to some degree, because so many parts of this world are, are starting to move people into this space. And so you realize maybe you have to figure this out. Right. But when they come in and they see all of these claims and counterclaims and, you know, so what is your maybe um, elevator pitch to someone about blockchain technology and the potential positive uses? If, if someone is maybe skeptical or just unaware, uh, sure. What, how do you dumb it down for people? Well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me because this is where Allison's work entered into the picture and, and literally threw the monkey wrench into the gears, right? I mean, it was all of a sudden, it was like, wait a minute, none of us had any concept, or at least I didn't until I started reading Allison that uh, there was kind of this flip side to the blockchain situation where it could be used for data collection. Everybody had always been talking about how these things, you know, they can't be hacked. They're privacy oriented. Um, and, and that's, again, where, you know, Allison tries to say it's, it's not ideological, but for the libertarian, when blockchain came out, I mean, from a libertarian perspective, maybe the number one uh, 
the number one tool that the upper classes use to oppress the 99% is the central banking system. Yes. They have a monopoly on the currency. And by creating a debt-based currency, they essentially skim off the top of wherever they've colonized, like all over the world where there's a central bank, all connected to the International Monetary Fund and the Bank of International Settlements. Uh, this centralized banking system is skimming off the top of all the economies of the world through this, the interest payments that they make on this debt-based currency system. So from a libertarian perspective, like probably the number one, you know, thing that you can do to liberate the people, to liberate the 99% is to break the back of this, of this currency monopoly. And so when blockchain technology came out and started to be utilized in this cryptocurrency fashion, then many libertarians were like, oh my God, this could be the way out. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they started to promote it. And Derek Rose started to promote it, not because he thought he was going to get loaded off of it or not because he was greedy and looking to get you know wealthy, but because he saw it as a path to liberation for the vast majority of the people around the planet that are oppressed by this centralized banking monopoly. So that's where, and I want to, and I want to uh, impress upon people that that's the intention here. Yeah. Like, like even if Allison is right and all blockchain technology is actually connected into this technocratic movement and it's all, it, it can only be used for the forces of empire then still, you know, then let's educate these libertarians about the fact that they've been hoodwinked, you know, right? that they got sucked into this cryptocurrency market thinking it was going to be liberating for the people. And it turns out that they got hoodwinked. I mean, guess what? Like we've all been hoodwinked by the elite before they co-opt institutions over and over again. I mean, this is how it operates. You know, yeah. something comes up, uh, a, a movement. I mean, we could talk about Black Lives Matter or the Tea Party for that. Matter. Both of those movements, I think, started as, as legitimate grassroots gripes. And then you can see where the corporate money gets involved and the upper classes co-op the movement and fit it into the left-right paradigm. And then we have the same old divide and conquer. And so yep. maybe that's what happened in the blockchain space. And, and we've all been hoodwinked. And I'm willing to even accept that as a possibility. Um, but I want to hear some more information. I want to hear some dialogue. Like, I'd love to hear Allison and Derek have a conversation about, you know, is it is the blockchain technology, you know, always going to be used to uh, suck people into this technocratic system through data collection, or can the technology be used in this different way where it still protects a, a person's privacy and it can still be used uh, to combat the central banking system. And from what I've seen in my conversations, I mean, my conversation with Jason Bosch specifically I mean, he just doesn't. And I, I include this in my addendum. It was kind of funny because I, you know, to me, it was such a, bl a black and white ideological issue that the first three part series just focused on what's going on with this ideological problem. And then yeah. almost everyone was like, well, you didn't even mention child exploitation, because to me, it was obvious that Derek doesn't he's not supportive of exploiting children like that's isn't that obvious, but apparently not. So I wrote the addendum to specifically uh, address the blockchain and the child exploitation issues and be like, these are gray areas that we have to move through with conscious dialogue, you know, having conversations yeah. with each other to try to figure this out. 
Um, and the intentions of people are important. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of moralizing going on where, you know, it's possible in this world where someone could have positive intentions and then just be wrong. And so we have dialogue and we, you know, figure it out. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that a person who's, you know, maybe made a mistake about a particular analysis or issue is an evil person, right? Yeah. I mean, like making that leap to me is a little bit over the top. Um, and so, you know, well, maybe, again, maybe so, it, it all came back to dialogue for me. Exactly. And, you know, if, if that seems to be where a lot of the focus or maybe where some of the criticism about where your focus initially was, um, I mean, to me, my reaction is that feels like the poisoning of the well topic. Then they want to focus on that topic because that's the most maybe uh, sensational, uh, you right. know, sal salacious. Um, and, and that's the stuff that sort of detracts logical thinking and gets the emotions going. So you're not maybe thinking through things clearly. But um, right. one of the things that is happening is the people that understand what needs to happen long term is parallel structures, parallel institutions, parallel systems need to be built. Mm -hmm. um, and if blockchain technology is an aspect of that, it needs to be looked at seriously, because um, I know now when I walk into a, a, a hospital, um, I'm pretty scared that my chances of dying, which statistically are, are this is accurate. My chances of dying are increasing because um, our hospital medical system is fucking horrific. I have right. this like I, I, I have this story. I have the story that I, I we all do. And yeah, I, will, I won't get into the specifics, but um, I had a success at working at the homeless shelter. And my success was because I stole a homeless homeless woman's pants. All right. And that sounds crazy the, the, that something positive would come from taking this woman's pants. OK, but she cycled through the ER so frequently and she would not ever stay when she was admitted to the hospital as an inpatient. Mm. Um, she would never stay the three days that would trigger her um, Medicare to pay for a skilled nursing discharge. Right. And so she, after a day or two, she would get kind of itchy and want to like get out. Uh, leave against medical advice and be back on the streets, going to the hotels, using her disability money to buy pills. Right. And so at one point, my the, the payee, the woman that controls her money, um, you know, this is where I'm coming at in terms of triage. Right. I, I steal the woman's pants because she was going to use her pants to leave the hospital. And she ended up staying the extra day. Medicare paid for her to go to a nursing home and she stayed at the nursing home where her needs were met. And she stopped costing our community thousands of dollars through first responder services that were just pointless because it was just you know ridiculous. And so right. our medical system is so fucking insane. Um, my desperation, and I was telling Allison this, my conversation with her, my desperation um, years ago, I, I remember like the University of Wisconsin was talking about this new app they were developing for people that had addictions. And it was such a great app because you could get videos um, about addiction. You could have like your whole support network and sort of like your 911 people that you would in an emergency, you know, really need to, to call to, to stay clean, to stay away from drugs. And this geolocation stuff, oh, man, it's really cool. You can uh, plug in where you used to go score around town so that you would get little warnings on your phone if you're getting too close to an area of town where you're scoring drugs. And I'm just sitting here thinking as like a good progressive young person wanting to save the system, you know, I'm like, whoa, that's so neat. That's so cool. But then that I mean, that whole pitch this university gave me when I heard Allison's, uh, you know, talk in her research, I was like, oh, fuck, man. Oh, no, this is like this is like, OK, problem, reaction, solution, you yeah. know, um, allow problems to get bad, uh, steer the reaction, offer the solution. And that is allegedly is where Allison came from, you know, being a mom 
in Philadelphia, seeing Boston Dynamics coming in and, and offering solutions for poor school districts and poor you know school kids. And, and so uh, it's interesting because at that local level, these things are, are happening. And there are people like me, still young, naive folks that are just desperate to accept any possible solution. Um, and I now am so cynical about these solutions. I, that's a big part of my frustration. It's like, okay, there is still value in Allison's research. There's still value in raising the alarm Absolutely. about what could, what could be done. Um, but there's no value in not talking about it and just going to each other's camps and being tribal you know, and, and saying, we're right, you're wrong, we're pure, you're impure. I mean, that's a fucking waste of time. And it's, it's really self-destructive in, in some ways to any kind of broader consensus alliance building. Yeah, I mean, the question of the technology use is so complicated and is getting so skewed now. I yeah. mean, it's difficult to tell. I mean, if, I, you know, I use Facebook or, you know, and it's like if that and I'm participating. Like I yeah. now, you know, I have this awareness Clearly, there, you know, all of these systems of technology that have now been so centralized. I mean, you know, Allison is 100% correct to point out that these technologies have come out of the military industrial complex and they've been built out and centralized by the government corporate system so yeah. that companies like Google have centralized the, the search engines of the world uh, through one major corporation. And, um, and so then it's like, well, if everything that we do is going through Google and they're collecting all of this data, I mean, how do we interact with the technology in a good way where it can be helpful and useful? And this is, I mean, this is something that Derek actually spends a lot of time teaching people how to do. Like, yeah. how do you here? Don't use an iPhone. Don't use an Android. They're automatically sucking up your data. Here's another option. Uh, you know, don't use... Uh, use Linux instead of these other operating systems that are that are uh, going to be sucking up your information, you know, and are part of this technocratic system. So, you know, from Derek's point of view, and this is where I agree with Derek in terms of, I, I think that as humanity progresses, you, you, this is actually a fascinating conversation because where does technology, I mean, I mean basically in our and I, I'm going to get into this more in my blog in, in because I, I like to talk like Allison does. And, and yeah. we, you've talked about this as a spiritual revolution or a spiritual transition that's happening. So, you know, I'll talk about what what is the difference between matriarchy and patriarchy and, and things like that, you know. Nice. And uh, and so what is a patriarchal culture? Well, I think one of the major without arguing my point forever, but just one of the major characteristics of a patriarchal culture is that technology springs from military conflict. And so all of our technology basically comes out of the military industrial complex. I mean, this is true. Now, does that mean that we can't use any of this technology in a, in a good way? And to me, and then in a matriarchal society, actually, one of, one of the interesting characteristics of, of, I mean, this term matriarchy, we can get into it. I don't even like using the, the sexual kind of metaphors or whatever. It's, these are all getting into metaphorical ways to describe these different ways of thinking about things. But um, the alternatives to patriarchy typically aren't the opposite of patriarchy, but rather they uh, like express concepts like the yin yang symbol, a yeah. harmonizing of the two. So it's it gets complicated complicated because we're not engaging in in a fight between one side and another one side thinks that it's right the other side believes that 
evolution occurs by harmonizing these two different energies. And that's where I think Derek comes from. I tend to agree with him on this, that there is a way for humanity to utilize technology in a way that harmonizes with our organic being, you yeah. know, that doesn't sacrifice our, our personal authenticity, that we don't have to become part of the Borg because we use a computer, you know, right. <laughs> because we have a, a cell phone. Um, and this is a part of the dialogue that needs to occur to be like, well, what is a healthy relationship with technology uh, as opposed to this kind of dominator technology that's coming out of the military industrial complex? And so it gets complicated because we don't even know, like, what would our society look like without the control of the military industrial complex? I mean, we'd have Tesla technologies, right? That are right, just could right. be like, we, we'd have other, I mean, uh, healthcare systems based on, uh, you know, the, the theory of the ether and, you know, more, maybe more, uh, more in alignment with ideas like chi or prana from other cultures, you right, know, right. where the human body is an energetic system. I mean, all of these things, these tech technologies that have been based on these concepts have been suppressed by the military industrial complex and then replaced with, uh, you know, these ideas that are incorporated into the technocratic fourth industrial revolution, yeah. the surveillance state, the biometrics, the data collection, everything else. So um, I, I've been thinking about this more lately in terms of the fact that it's almost like I think that those of us who are interested in liberation can actually co-opt some of the tools that are coming out of the military industrial complex in order to use them for positive purposes, for liberation purposes. Yes. So, you know, so yes, uh, blockchain technology comes out of the military industrial complex. That doesn't mean that we can't, you know, reverse engineer that technology and then use it to build privacy coins or to, to maintain, you know, maybe even a, like a smart contract system that doesn't, I mean, you know, I think Ethereum is rightly suspect because it's more uh, it's, it's the data becomes available on the blockchain. Right. But, right. Um, and it's been used as the backbone for some of these vaccine passports and stuff. So clearly the tech, you know, the technology is being used um, by these technocrats, but, you know, I think that we can build uh, on this technology, reverse engineer it, and then make it where, you know, nobody can access your data uh, on the blockchain unless the owner of the coin actually gives permission to look right. into that data. Um, and that makes sense to me. Now, I don't know enough about, about it. I want to see a debate. I mean, that's the irony for me. I don't even disagree with Allison on almost everything that she says. And I don't even disagree with her about Splinterlands in particular. Like, yeah. I think, well, Derek could have picked a different example, you know? Right. Um, but, but, for me, the important thing is to hear dialogue between these opposing camps, as opposed to this uh, kind of shutting down the conversation uh, and saying that that one side is right, the other one is wrong. Um, I just don't think that's healthy. Yeah, uh, I, I want to bounce off something. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Keep, keep well, I, I actually I mean, I don't know how long you have, but I want to get to this question of unity within the system 
within the scene I'm before before we um, I have as much time as, as you can as you can offer um okay uh, I don't I don't have Sounds a day good. job I don't have a day job so this is my job nice yeah me neither um, <laughs> but, but I, I really want to bounce off something because um the male female aspect of things mentioning uh patriarchy in the military mm-hmm. you know I'm right now I'm deeply involved in trying to be more accountable in my own personal relationship with my wife so I've been with my my partner um since 1998 so we've been together for quite sure. a long time and you know, uh, my use of alcohol created a lot of problems and dynamics, and I'm having to be more aware of how I've used control in my own relationships. Yep. Right um, there with to, your brother. Yeah, to maintain bad habits and just to be, a, you know, to be an asshole and to keep my own partner in a slightly, you know, and I don't think I was doing this consciously, but a disp- disempowered situation so that she wasn't powerful enough to challenge my bad habits. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm having to deal with some shit and thinking this this through. But at the same time, I, I strongly believe in the divine masculine and the divine feminine. I, I really strongly believe in that. And when you mention like patriarchy in the military, you know, we have such a, a, you know, corporate sense of what that boots on the ground soldier thing is now. But there is a sense of the warrior in terms of the divine masculine. Yeah. It's, it's not a negative thing. The protector, right. you know, this idea of um, the masculine having this aspect that is not just toxic, the toxic male. Um, but at, at the same time, um, I think there is something to be aware of. I, have you ever heard of the book, The Alphabet versus the Goddess? No. Oh, I'll check it out. man. It's written by Leonard Schlein. He's a neurologist. And I was just mentioning this book to someone the other day because it when I first read it, the suppression of the divine feminine throughout history is something that he approaches on this like neurological level. So the right left brain mm-hmm. like dynamic and sure. what he asserts as this, this shift that happened again, the shift, uh, the shift that happened when the alphabet was introduced in this sort of like introduction of abstract symbols, right. creating this shift into maybe linear thinking that was more reductive and the divine feminine then, which is more sort of right brain, spatial, creative, you know, was mm-hmm. in some ways minimized, suppressed. And, and it's really interesting to start thinking about this, this swing back. So when photography and movies and all this other mediums that are coming back, that are stimulating the right brain to think of this, shift happening from a, a maybe a, a patriarchy to a, a matriarchy um, and what that might mean as like the sort of the feminine um, power, which is in part can be destructive, the Kali, you know, mother of death kind of thing, which was invoked by Oppenheimer when the, the bomb blew. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I find it very interesting to think in those broader terms, but also to be accountable to my own relationships because of how I've had to be aware of um, the good and the bad of aspects of my own personality. And so it's interesting because um, I don't see anyone because it's very difficult to kind of say it's a man woman thing, but that's got to be a part of this, this particular feud. Um, you know, how, how things are approached. Um, and I, I, this is going to sound kind of crude. I have a penis vagina kind of uh, metaphor, you know, because at one point years ago, it just kind of struck me how how the genitals represent this kind of interesting approach. You know, uh, a man's genitals is external and kind of linear and, and you know, obvious. And a lot of our actions oh, yeah. are more just obvious. And whereas a feminine, um, the genitalia is internal and circular and, you know, womb and and, and mysterious. And, and you mentioned early on when we started talking about sort of this progressive, passive, aggressive way of executing power within these committees and these little groups. And I I don't want to be us two men bashing on the feminine, right? That's certainly not my, my intent. My wife will kick my ass because she is the, (laughs) tell me about it. 
Like she's the better, <laughs> better half of in, in some ways when it comes to being, you know, more accountable, I think. But um, I, I find that aspect really interesting. So I'm glad you brought that up. And maybe what are your impressions on just those those feminine masculine dynamics in part of all this? Sure. Yeah, this is uh, I mean, this is the root of it. This is why I call my show the shift, right? I mean, shifting from patriarchy to a more of a matriarchal system. I've even probably one of the reasons why it took me so long to start writing a blog was exactly uh, this concept of that language, like, you know, the written word is actually um, uh, it's not um, it, it's automatically patriarchal in that it is. Yeah. You, you're creating this kind of didactic, logical argument on the page that you're arguing is the truth. Um, and yep. that's not actually how life works. Like yeah. there, there are other mediums. I I'm actually trying to publish a book right now that describes like a, a metaphysics that's more matriarchal based, um, and an aesthetics, then it has an aesthetic section that talks about like creation and that's, and it gets into this whole, uh, mythology of the differences between patriarchy and matriarchy. And I end it with an appendix that has a, like a music based medium. Yeah. Um, because I think that's the best way I've been, I've been thinking a lot about ped pedagogies lately, like yes. how you teach these concepts to people um, and teaching them through the written word actually misses the point. Like people are still going to be too in that uh, logical brain. Uh, and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to kind of let go and get into their physical selves and really understand some of these um, more esoteric concepts that are more like grounded in your physical body. Uh, so, you know, using music, you still have words, you have songs, many indigenous cultures, you know, their, their songs are very important, but the songs are sung, you know, <laughs> yep. it's not like you're writing it out in a logical argument, which is where patriarchal cultures or our, certainly our Western culture has evolved into this, you know, the word is God kind of concept. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, somebody who writes a book is an expert or whatever. It's like, well, you know, it's, it's really just a way to kind of spew some thoughts onto a page and you can turn it into a logical argument. My, my latest piece for the blog was about the difference between dialectical logic and what I would call dialogical logic. And I go back to uh, the Socratic argument with the sophists. And yeah. um, what I'm saying is that like our, our current culture is basically complete sophistry, scientism and the, the, the truth, the experts know the truth. And whereas um, instead of thinking of truth and logic as being some kind of way to find this um, transcendent truth that then is used to justify controlling everyone, controlling others. This gets into the passive aggressive when you in the psychology yeah, of it, yeah. um, it's controlling behavior and you can be convinced that your argument is the best, you know, but when you, when you use it to control others, even passive aggressively, then you're crossing this line in dialogue. You're not trying to control somebody else. You're trying to like help each other. You're helping each other to refine your own perspectives. Yeah. Um, so I talk in the, in the new piece uh, about dialectic and dialogue uh, about like just making sure that you don't get triggered. I talk about the stoic movement um, yeah. that, that started about the same time in ancient Greece. It was more prominent in Rome, but um, where their concern was that they didn't get triggered. Like they used logic to make sure that 
their emotions didn't overcome them. It's not that the emotions aren't important. Yeah. That like when our emotions are out of balance, as so many of us are having been raised in this, you know, oppressive environment, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, then we'll, we'll get triggered. And once we get triggered, you know, we can't, we're not thinking rationally anymore. So it's like reason becomes a tool to help balance the emotions instead of a tool to argue that my point of view is right. And therefore you have to think like I do, you know, it's more like a a personal discipline. It becomes more like a spirit path following the discipline of logic instead of a religion, you know, following the authority, uh, the authority, which is the patriarchal uh, way of thinking about it. And it's fascinating because like in your personal relationship, the psychology and, and then the archetypes and the mythology that then, and that's what I've been like. I, I don't know if you saw my psychology of lockdown series, but I've been no, doing, I'll check yeah, that out. I've been doing this psychology of lockdown series for the last year. I just wrapped it up. I'm going to, I'm going to publish the last one, post the last one here, hopefully next week. Excellent. Um, but it was defining basically our relationship with government as this codependent relationship. Yeah. And yep. so being able to apply this personal psychology, like the relationship between you and your wife or me mm-hmm. and my wife, the archetypes that are created out of that become these cultural archetypes that become how the government is treating us, you know, like amen to that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And if so, you allow yourself to be a toddler um, needing a, a, a papa government or even mama caretaker government, um, then you're going to give your power and your sovereignty over to these like larger entities. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Well, I didn't realize that, that you had that interest in that aspect of your work. I'm very excited to continue digging into the stuff cool. that, that you're doing. Um, other other things that you wanted to mention before we maybe start looking at um, heading in the wrap up direction. Um, you mentioned a little bit about oh, what was it? Uh, wanting to get into not blockchain because we've discussed that um, pretty pretty well. Um, well, and maybe I'll, I'll speak a little bit then to to the written word because I really do like this idea of being more aware of of the controlling functions even of artistic expression or mm-hmm. you know different um forms of expression and so you know my, my first session with my wife when we were we have a counselor now and i really encourage anyone to help get yeah. a third party to help kind of go through things and i i wrote something down beforehand that i was going to read and and when i read it it had the impact i desired and the, and the counselor was like wow that's very powerful and impactful and i'm like yeah, but that's the problem. I'm trying to control the situation immediately by using, I, I went to you know university for fucking English creative writing. So I am good at using words. Yeah. Um, and I, as long as, you know, I think that my intentions are to try and have good outcomes, that's fine. But I, I started having an inkling of my own potential of manipulation when um, I got this profile at my last job at, at a nonprofit. They do those, you know, profile things. Like I think it's, this one is called the DISC profile, the D-I-S-C. And I was very high in the red. So my my I, which stands for inspiration, was way up there. High inspiration, right? I'm, I'm very good at motivating others and I can be very charismatic. But um, the flip side of that is the potential manipulation I'm also capable of. And I, I didn't ever think about my my behavior as being that potentially manipulative because so much of it was sort of in this unconscious like basement, you know, where where I wasn't yeah. wasn't paying attention to maybe the things I was doing. And so it's been a very interesting process as we're all thrown into the shift that's happening. I mean, none of us have the ability to just be outside of the shift. We are all in this to some degree. Um, and so I know I value listening to other people discussing how they are perceiving these shifts that are happening. 
Um, and really, if you can't apply some of these things in your own life to try and be slightly better so you can fight these vampiric forces, you know, yeah. um, then then it's it's kind of a waste of time. And so I, I, I think um, if you're not applying what you're learning to your own life, I mean, that's part of the work to, to be done so that we are in a stronger position as maybe a smaller population of people awake to this stuff. And we can help others then in a, in a positive way, because my anger is not going to open up someone else to the deceit they're experiencing. Right. Um, and, and it's very important, I think, for us to just be accountable as best we can to ourselves. So, yeah, it's so fascinating because, um, you know, I've gotten into the psychological angle for me when I went to college, I studied philosophy and I was, and I believed, you know, logic is the way to figure this out. Like, let's get through it. And then I yeah. spent, you know, 20 years of my life having these logical conversations with people and, <laughs> you know, not changing one single mind. I don't think, you know, like it was like, like, what the hell is let's going regroup, on? let's refigure this uh, approach. Right. <laughs> and so when I started, I started delving into the psychology of it all. And that's when everything just clicked. It's like, oh, this is what's going on. And it's like you say, it's all it's subconscious. Like people yeah. need to realize the power of the psych subconscious. Like we're yep. not going to tap into the subconscious by having logical conversations. We yeah. have to be able to, like, take a step back. And we have to be able to go, what's really happening here? Why are so many people getting triggered? You know, I mean, when I'm on social media, it's just hilarious. It's like, can, can you ever have a, a rational conversation that goes all the way through? Like somebody almost invariably is like all of a sudden, I mean, when I posted this stuff about Alison McDowell, like clearly a lot of her followers, you know, they just, you know, it was just mudslinging central. It was yeah. like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, well, to, you know, to you're, I reaction. was called a liar. I was called. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to be, you know, I. Another another aspect of what I do, I, I do a lot of Tai Chi. We have this saying, nice softness always overcomes hardness. And we consistently train not to come out. It's this this gets into the relationship between the psychology and then the physical body. Yes, um, because the Tai Chi is so energy based and you start to get a sense of how easy. I mean, everyone wants to come out like the the idea behind the martial art of Tai Chi is that when somebody pushes on you, you don't push back. Like the, right. the, 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 the ego kicks in instantly and you want to fight back right away. I mean, it's just, it's so subconscious that it's something that we literally like, it takes years and years and, and maybe lifetimes to, mm -hmm. to like whittle away at this need to think that you're right. Uh, or we feeling attacked when somebody's really doing something to you that, you know, wh why do you care? What, what difference does it make yeah. uh, not to, not to come out? So I'm trying to use some of these skills when I deal with people on social media that are triggered into this name calling or mudslinging mm -hmm. or whatever, which happens so often. Yeah. Uh, and then just realizing that like, okay, yeah, this is a psychological thing. And it's happened to me you know, it happens to all of us. I think if we're awake to this conspiracy theory universe, like uh -huh. when you start talking to your family and friends, like, wait, you know, and I think what you're hearing on the news is total bullshit. <laughs> and they're like, no way. And you're like, well, here's all this primary documentation. And they're just like, well, I don't know, whatever, you know, that's just my, you know, the, my journalist friend on Fox news or NPR or MSNBC would know about this. And so they're not mentioning it. So it exactly. must not be true. I mean, that's cognitive dissonance straight in your face. I deal with it every day, you yeah. know, all the time. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, that was like you were talking about on the community level, you know, mm -hmm. I've really, I've really gone out of my way on the community level to try to even change just a few minds on my local listserv. You know, I got really involved and, and posting. It was so funny because eventually I realized like, 
I would tell people like, I'm not trying to convince you that I'm right. I'm trying to let you know that I'm not a crazy person. I mean, they're just coming at me with, you know, the gaslighting right all the time. Oh, you're just a nut job, tinfoil hat, you know, and it's right, like, right. Well, look at this primary source, you know, let's do a comparative and, and contrast between, you know, the CNN article and this Infowars article that you think is so crazy, you know, right. And they wouldn't do it, you know, and they'd accuse me of cognitive dissonance. This was kind of five or six years ago. I really tried to explore this to see what does it take to change somebody's mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, these terms had were really coming out. You have confirmation bias. You just look on the Internet for what you want. Right. You have cognitive dissonance. And uh, because I was so open minded and like, well, let's let's interact. Let's see if we can, uh, you know, if we can kind of get past some of these differences and they wouldn't. I, I realized this is they're projecting their cognitive dissonance onto me like I'm open minded. Maybe I do have. I'm sure I do. Actually, I'm sure that I have cognitive dissonance on right. some level about some things. And I'd love and that's where dialogue comes in. Yeah. A healthy dialogue. People would be helping me point out, point out to me my cognitive dissonance. But when you're involved in these dialectical conversations where it's like the best argument wins. So Dr. Fauci is the smartest guy in the world. You know, the experts always win and you, you can't make these choices for yourself. It's like, that's not, that's the kind of logic that leads to control, not the yeah. kind of logic that leads to personal growth. And, and this gets back to the other thing that you were saying about, we need the only person you can control is yourself. This was exactly. a hard, hard life lesson for me to learn. And mo many of us, I think. <laughs> yep. 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 And, and it is, as you say, like part of this um, spiritual battle that's happening is really that people need to like look into themselves and, and strengthen yourself. I mean, one of the things I say in my, in my latest piece, if we use dialogue in an appropriate way, if we can use logic in this appropriate way, it becomes a methodology for, for um, building self-character. Yeah. That's what it's all about. It's not about convincing somebody else that your point of view is the truth it's about let's have engage in a dialogue so that we can help to like heal each other from these triggering concepts that throw us out of our logical mind um, because of imbalanced emotions caused by trauma and let's you know have the open-mindedness to engage in this dialogue where we can help to like balance our emotions by applying uh, you know, the logical fallacies or helping each other to understand where are our confirmation biases? Where are, yeah. where do we lapse into cognitive dissonance? And, and, you know, unfortunately, gosh, you know, we're also this, this fight or flight, this fighting. I mean, that's the thing about dialectic logic, the, the sophistry, the argument is that when you disagree with someone, it becomes a personal attack. It's like, can, can we get away from that? Like, like, that's not what's happening here. I just have a different opinion than you. Yeah. Let's have a conversation about it. We may not change each other's minds, but we'll, we'll come away from the conversation as better people because we had it, you know, yeah. the, and, and this is, I mean, we, this is a big shift that we need to make in the scene here mm -hmm. uh, in order to kind of start to unify um, against this technocratic takeover that's happening. I mean, I don't see any other way out of it. I mean, we need to like be able to shift away from thinking that we're arguing with each other into this understanding that as long as you're an open-minded person, then we're all in the same boat here, you know, like open yep, your yep. mind. You don't know if you're right. Let go of that ego attachment to needing to be right. Recognize that 
you know, lot, your logic is only something that can be used for your own personal decisions. One of the things, one of the things happened to me over the summer, you know, I was arguing about ivermectin left and right all on social media. Oh my, you know, there's 63 peer reviewed studies that say that, you know, ivermectin is effective against COVID. And then people would be like, but no, you know, Dr. Fauci says that it's uh, it's worthless. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay. And then I suddenly it just clicked to me. Why does anyone care what I take if I get sick? Like whose decision is that? But my own, like, this is what I'll take. You don't have to take it if you don't want to like go get your vaccine. If that's what you want. Like, I don't, it's none of my business. Like how did everything become a public conversation? Like, Dude, are we going to have huge debates over what toothpaste I use or, you know, what kind of apples I like or what? I mean, it's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. I used to get stuck in winning arguments on the comment threads of my blog posts before I realized that this right. is a product of my own insecurities. Right. I, was, <laughs> I was telegraphing how easy it was to provoke me into wasting time making long comments. And like some people just really like to. The, do you remember the the lulz, L-U-L-Z? People right. just trolling, you know, back at back in the early days of the yeah, blog. The laugh emoji just drives me nuts when people yeah. are just like, oh, no, you know, like but blow I, you off. I realized I realized I was applying too much uh, of the argument um, comment thread mentality in my own life when my wife would say, I'm not a comment thread. You can just like try and, and win. And I was like, yeah. oh, is that what I'm trying to do? It's like shit. Um, and, and so it's, it's been difficult to, to realize that that is an aspect maybe of, of um, well-intentioned activism and wanting to change people's minds and the wisdom it, it takes to realize that, that the more you push, I mean, people are going to arrive at things on their own timelines. We can't really, um, I mean, we can maybe plant some seeds. You know, I like to plant seeds, but right. I do it in a, in a caring way of like, hey, I'm just offering this. You can take it or leave it. You know, but it's it's up to you kind of kind of thing. Um, and one of the things I'll mention is we're kind of looking at, at wrapping things up a bit, although I, I could probably go for another, you know, two hours. If I, I, had I actually coffee. have time. I have an interview at two. I mean, I probably, you know, but I could do another half hour easy. So okay. well, I'm enjoying see. myself. Yeah, no, let's, let's keep chatting <laughs> a bit because okay. um, it's it, some of the local stuff that's going on. I have to kind of question my own intentions. Right. So um, and, and where influence and power exerts itself. So something that I wrote in my blog today is about um, some people showed up on a they were protesting a care facility here in Missoula. Um, and the care facility has a resident that um, got two shots, didn't work, contracted COVID, now wants to get a booster. But the facility is on lockdown. So one of the one of the people that that showed up to, to basically protest the fact that 25 percent of the staff are not vaccinated they're trying to pressure that 25% of the staff as being unvaccinated, right? Yeah. They want all of them to be vaccinated. And one of the people owns a bar downtown. So she makes money selling alcohol. And it's very interesting, the dynamics at, at play. She's a board member of the, the independent living facility that I think provides some service to this client. Um, but my perspective is um, it is people's own decisions to make about their medical choices. Um, and I'm considering doing some type of direct action protest outside of the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very sensitive to the people that are are sort of like just working and trying to make a living. So my hope is that I'll go in and, and provide a tip to the bartender and say, hey, this is because your owner is trying to pressure people um, to, to take unwanted medical intervention. You know, it's not about you making money. Um, and but my question is sort of like, at what point does some of this maybe action uh, the, the more in your face stuff that I'm doing artistically to try to get people to think differently about stuff. 
have a potential bad effect or bad, bad outcome. Um, because I've gotten to a point where I'm being very, very assertive and direct in my own local community because of the retaliation of our experience politically. Um, when people do get active in their local community, they have to be aware that, um, I mean, your, your soccer games are going to get more uncomfortable. You don't know where your social network right. actually has some interesting ties. You know, like I, I know someone that's gotten a, a board position they're they're involved with um, is under under scrutiny now because, you know, they crossed this executive director of a nonprofit and they're friends with people in the arts community. And so now the arts community is kind of like asymmetrically attacking certain aspects of people that are getting involved in in medical freedom uh, movements. But um it's interesting because you you were in Northern California and it's taken you a while. It sounds like to sort of, sort of be more open about where you're coming from ideologically. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever looked at any of the, like the meetups that are happening? And this is something I wanted to kind of pitch and promote because I, I know the prop report, Monica Perez and Brad Binkley are really trying to connect people in their own backyards to like-minded folks. And um, the, the higher side chat now has a website where they're trying to promote meetups. I've met a couple people here in Missoula that um, amazing folks through these high, these higher side chat meetups. Um, I think no agenda does meetups as well. Um, and so are you looking to get more involved locally or, or where do you see a possible inroad into maybe shifting your own perspective and, and, and what you're doing on a bigger scale um, in case the, the lights go out and technology isn't there for us to connect with like-minded people, what, what's your local sure. landscape kind of look like? Well, one thing is interesting is that I'm, I'm moving. Uh, I'm actually oh. moving to, to uh, where my wife's family lives in Iowa. So I'm about to, to kind of take off from here. Jason Burmis is in Iowa. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that's true. Um, I, uh, I have an interesting relationship with uh, local organizing. I, I have been deeply involved in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, um, I think maybe I wrote this story a little bit in, in the piece, but um, you know, I worked with a, a lot of progressives, a group of progressives here uh, in Mendocino County for a public banking initiative. Oh, um, cool. They were, and I, you know, I wasn't like a, a prominent libertarian amongst the scene. I think a lot of people would have been uh, taken aback at that. But I've, uh, as a, as a, as a kind of a, I, I mean, I actually believe in. Ideally, I think we can have just a, a free market currency system with all kinds of currencies out there, and and anyone can make a, a currency, and we can pick and choose. And um, but. Absent that, which probably won't happen in my lifetime, uh, I have been attracted to the public banking movement. I've interviewed Alan Brown multiple times, uh, and I've helped to promote this concept. And so when people were interested in doing that here, uh, I helped promote uh, that campaign here. And then I did the work at the local radio station as well. Um, It's been it's interesting because my I got frustrated with local politics when I realized how much. Uh, influence the state. Fi- it's basically state financing, state ah. financing and federal financing have on all of this. And so 90% of our local politicians are not going to let go of that money. Like, so if you advocate for something that the states, you know, is going to mean the state's not going to give that hundred million dollars a year into the county coffers, then nobody's going to be on your side. And so I've started to, 
I mean, I just started to dedicate more and more time to the podcast and more of a, what yeah. you know, a larger, broader national audience because the local activism just didn't seem to have the potential to go anywhere. And I'm not, I'm certainly not saying it's not a worthy cause. I think again, there's a yin and yang and, and, you know, I'm sure I do kind of go back and forth. It's not like I don't go to the occasional local meeting. We just had a lawyer from children's health defense, uh, California, hold a meeting here nice. that I went to. There seems to be actually some, some positive uh, movement in the local direction. People that are kind of coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know, I'm sick of wearing these masks. We're sick of these mandates. Yep. Um, we're maybe we're more and more ready. Um, the person that I have been interviewing uh, for the psychology of lockdown series, she's got a master's in psychology. She's been helping me wrap that one up. And she's a local organizer here. They've been doing maskless shopping, like full on uh, nice. direct actions. Um, and I'm certainly supportive of all of that. I, I just, it's, it's such a, again, it's just kind of a yin and yang thing. It's like, how do you change your local community when your local community is not empowered to make those changes? Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of talk about going to like uh, people going to the school boards. Why are you making my kids wear masks? And they're at the school boards and, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can find all these parents that are trying to make changes. But if those school boards don't take that don't, you know, don't have that, uh, those mask mandates, they don't get the state funding. I mean, there's, there's just a direct connection between the power structure uh, on these, I mean, from yeah. the UN all the way down. I mean, that's why patriarchy is hierarchical and that the people at the top have so much control and influence that it's very challenging. I mean, I'd love it to live in a community where enough people were like, yeah, we're just not going to take your money anymore. You know, right. we're going to do it on our own. Um, and I and I certainly advocate for things like Derek Rose's Freedom Cells or these meetup groups. I mean, yes. you know, it's a great way to meet like minded people and make a change on the ground. And I'm more attracted to the concept. I mean, clearly the odds of there being some kind of a major revolution in the next couple of years uh, probably not super high. And so the development of parallel uh, economies yep. uh, seems to be the way to go. I mean, if you don't want to be dependent on, you know, having your vaccine passport and a high enough social credit score to go in and buy groceries, then you better have a relationship with the community of people that are growing food and, you know, making clothes and, and yep, yep. Uh, getting you the things that you need so that you can survive, you know, making sure that you have clean water. Um, so do you have, do you have I, chickens, Doug? You know, I don't right now, but I have. I've had chickens and goats. <laughs> Excellent one, well, Iowa. Um, that might be something to look at at sure. setting up and getting to know some of the local food producers. And yeah, um, I mean, there definitely are, I think, positive things to to put energy to. And one of the things yeah. locally, I, I I think you made a sounds like an accurate assessment of of what sort of the cost benefit analysis would be of sinking time in locally and what you're actually up against. Right. Um, and you know, it's it's like. I see locally committees are where people are sent to just like sink their energy. You know, it's like they'll create a committee to create it's, the illusion that they're listening to you. That's just it. It's so frustrating. And yep. it, it's such a time suck. Like exactly, all, you know, you're spending hours and hours and hours going to these committee meetings and really are the people on the committees or anybody has any real power, are they really ever going to change or go against what the state is mandating or, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it, because it takes a real special kind of person to go against the grain, especially when there's millions of dollars on the line. And it's just like, how can you make these changes? It's, it's really challenging. I mean, that's again, in, to go back to my, to my three-part essay, 
Uh, that's why at the end of it, it's like, let's just have a compromise that we need to decentralize power. Like who cares about the rest of these? Have your, have your conversations locally because yeah. that's where the real changes happen. Yeah. Um, and if, and if enough of us, I mean, this goes back to the unity question, which is another thing that I just, I mean, look, the upper classes wouldn't spend billions of dollars a year on psychological manipulation. I mean, the Tavistock Institute, the propaganda, the, the marketing, the public yeah. relations. I mean, this is a hundred billion dollar a year industry. They wouldn't spend that kind of money if they weren't afraid that we weren't going to wake up like, yep. like, like it or not. I mean, that's just the thing that kind of boggles my mind. The upper classes know that their greatest enemy is the 99% figuring this out. I mean, if we've all figured it out, they have no power. It doesn't exactly. matter how much money they have or their huge military or whatever. Like they need to have this psychological manipulation in place in order for us to keep ourselves down, yeah. <laughs> you know, and if we stopped keeping ourselves down, then we would not, we would be liberated. And so, um, you know, and, and the concept of unity just means decentralized power, all this other stuff. I mean, we, we you kind of talked earlier about, we've entered into this post-truth world, you know, there's oh, yeah. so many conversations happening. And I think even especially amongst those, I mean, they're, you know, I don't know what the percentages really are, but maybe 50, 60, 70% of the population are still listening to NPR every morning and thinking that's real. And, you know, 30, 40, 50% of the population are like, man, I don't know, you know, Dr. <laughs> Fauci's been saying some pretty weird shit. And I, you know, I'm starting to look, you know, at other sources and having questions. Mm -hmm. Um, but we need to, when, when, for those people that have kind of awoken from the hypnotism of all the propaganda that's all around us, then they, they, you know, one, another thing that you mentioned was people kind of are waking up to this on their own timeline. Yeah. That's something I wish more people were, were compassionate about. I mean, so many, so many people in the scene, then they, they either have followed their passion down their particular rabbit hole. Um, and then they think that if you disagree with them on that rabbit hole, then you're not really awake. I mean, I've seen this in the germ theory, uh, terrain theory debate, yeah. which I have interviewed a number of doctors on this from kind of kind of from both sides. I mean, I tend to lean terrain theory myself. I love the fact that the whole thing's been kind of blown wide open and we get to have this wild conversation. you know. Yeah. And uh, but but it's like I, then I hear people that are saying, you know, well, if you're not a germ or if you're not a terrain theorist then you're still sucked into big pharma and the, and the whole allopathic medicine thing. And you're just a part of the machine and that's the end of it. And you don't know anything and you're not. And it's like, look, you know, if you believe in healthcare freedom, I don't care what, you know, what you do for yeah, your yeah. healthcare, your personal healthcare choices. Why is it such a big deal? I mean, I could go, you know, we all know that the ancient aliens theory or the flat earthers versus the round. It's like, why are you, you know, like you can argue about this. That's great. You know, but, but at the end of the day, aren't we all trying to like get out from under the yoke of the billionaire class and the technocratic machine that's all coming down on well, our, absolutely. our heads right now. Like, absolutely. Can we focus and on that a little bit. I love the way you, and this is like where the solution oriented uh, direction I feel is going is, is, is saying there are some like broad ideas, decentralization being one of the main ones. Yeah. Like, let's hold that as a big umbrella idea. And then yeah. locally, what are you, what are you doing? And so one of the broad kind of like, big ideas that I I'm always going back to is the idea of narrative control um, and narrative control that goes hand in hand with centralization. You centralize yeah. you know, all control 
Um, and information and narrative is such a huge aspect of that. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I put out a documentary, a three-part documentary on tax increment financing. And the, the term itself is, is uh, I call it average Joe repellent because you put the average Joe repellent of a, a, a technocrat or technological sounding um, term. No mm -hmm. one even wants to start thinking about it, right? And so what we did um, when, when this tax increment financing scheme, which is used in a lot of communities, got so out of control in 2019 that 16 million was going to be given to the private sector um, to develop this big performance art center, um, condo tower, and it's being done by this guy, Nick Chakota, who moved from Wisconsin to Missoula. His dad, Joe, Joe Chakota, was involved in politics. Ugly, ugly stuff, right? And, and so this, this uprising happened locally, and it wasn't just a few people angry in a couple city council meetings. It was a sustained uh, effort week after week after week. And the documentary captures the utter contempt and disdain our local officials have for the peasants. Yeah. And it really is like the fucking peasants should just shut up, like know their place. Um, and, and so we went at length to, to really show um, what this uprising did. And we had a, a whistleblower, a drone whistleblower, Brandon Bryant, who has actually spoken on the international stage as he was coming out um, about his concerns over the Obama drone program. And this veteran was charged with felony intimidation and was facing 10 years in prison and a hundred thousand dollar bond at the end of this four months of agitation. Um, I mean, it just, one of the big messages that, that um, I hope people take away from this documentary, um, and I'm a financially privileged person that was able to do a lot of the, the self-financing. And so that's one way that we were mm -hmm. able to get around the narrative control is, you know, find someone that can actually take a sacrificial investment of their own, their own dollars. Right. Um, but one of the things that we really experienced is that um, we are humans and we are flawed. And when you oppose local power, any kind of flaw that you have will be used against you. I mean, we have city council members that are sitting there looking up the criminal histories of the constituents that are, you know, showing up and, and deigning to have a, a ulterior opinion about public financing. <laughs> and oh, a puppy dog. Yeah. Um, excellent. And I, I actually, you know what? Uh, one of the things I need to do is take my dog out uh, to the to, on a walk. She's been without a walk for three days because our uh -oh. car was in the shop. So that's one of my daily tasks that I need to do. Um, but hey, go on, buddy. What, what kind of dog do you have, actually? Oh, he's a little bit of a mix. A little bit of a he's a, kind of kind of a herding dog. Nice, very nice. I love animals. Um, yeah, sorry but, about but, that. No, no, that's quite all right. The um. It's just it's a fascinating thing to to have really understood about opposing the local power structure and what really was deployed against um, against us. And so um, I offer this documentary to anyone that wants to understand what it what it might actually look like on the ground to oppose people that are that are thinking they know better than you in terms of where to build condos, um, where to put cloth on your kids, you know, face. All these things are kind of playing into this this power structure that is really desperate to maintain control. And I think you have the best sense of where to start dislodging that control locally, because that really is where the things play out on the ground. So I don't know if there's yeah, a question I mean, in that. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think, again, it goes back to this yin and yang. Like yeah. we need to have both both actions going on. I mean, I, I think that if we I mean, somehow, you know what? people have been doing the research about BlackRock and Vanguard and the amount of, of financial control that just a handful of people that control yep. these two organizations have on the entire system. Uh, you know, ultimately the goal is to bring these guys down. I mean, they're the ones that, 
that are uh, imposing all of this narrative control on the rest of us and really confusing. I mean, actually, you know, confusing people on the local level. I mean, that's just it. That's what I constantly end up yes. doing. I'm arguing against the dominant narrative uh, and people have a hard time believing it because the narrative is so dominant and they can't see that it's all centrally controlled in the hands of a, a handful of well, very wealthy people. You they know? don't want to. So yeah, they don't want to believe that this tentacle of this octopus um, has like this thing up uh, Neil Young's asshole, like it, it's right. up his asshole. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's like it's like wiggling his tongue. It's like, oh, yeah. Hypnosis goes to this, goes to that, goes to Black Rock or Blackstone. You know, um, it's just yeah. it's such a, a, a giant sort of monster monolith that seems to be moving all of these little puppets um, and that that enough people are still not savvy to some of the more sophisticated narrative control techniques that are being used. Um, but it's really exciting as we have these conversations because the, the podcasting platform itself is offering this, this long form opportunity to have conversations. I mean, my wife loves Joe Rogan. She listens to Joe Rogan because she wants two to three hour conversations that yeah. she can listen to as she's doing things um, to maintain a household and three kids that are driving her insane, you know? So right. <laughs> um, it is, it is a really great opportunity now in this, in this moment to be able to have some of these conversations, to move dialogue. Um, see where things might be possible in your own backyard. And if not, you know, people are making a lot of big decisions, a lot of big life changes, I think, um, as they are trying to align themselves with maybe what they're feeling is, is the right thing to be doing in this moment. So, I mean, I think yeah. it's encouraging and a big, a big move for you is going to be a big uh, change, certainly. But, um, you know, I think people just have to be realistic about where they're at and what can be accomplished. Because um, it doesn't seem like we have a whole lot of time to, to try and put some parallel structures in place. Um, they are still trying to um, close things down. And even though it feels like the narrative wars being won to some degree, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if you're familiar with like the spars document, but man, mm -hmm. documents like the spars document really need to make all of us aware of false victories yeah. um, and how we can um, take our eye off the ball when it comes to the, the movement, I think making some, some really good progress, but at the same time, I mean, I don't have billions, billions of dollars in family, you know, bloodlines to, to plan shit out over generations. So, um, right. and, and they do, and that's part of being realistic about what we're up against. I so. mean, can you imagine how different it would be on the community level without these larger forces implementing this amount of narrative control? I mean, that's yeah. what's ultimately happens over and over again. You've got people that believe in the, in the dominant narrative. And uh -huh. then you have to try to argue against them. And this is where it goes back again to the psychological aspect of it. I mean, I, yeah. I show people the spars document, which should in and of itself be enough for people to go, you know what? Like, <laughs> wow. Or I mean, shit, you can read Klaus Schwab's books. I mean, like here, here's where they tell you what they're doing. I have his books. I I, I buy yeah. those books because I, I want I want the words of the sociopaths in my library so I can be like, listen, this is what they are saying themselves. God damn it. I mean, that's the irony of it all. They're not yeah. even hiding it. If you go and you look at, you know, like beyond uh, above the dominant narrative are these guys that just write literally writing books and white papers all the time, easily yep. accessible. Uh, but people just assume that, oh, if these guys were really nefarious, it would be part of the dominant narrative. And it's like, no, because these guys are creating the dominant narrative. Yeah. Um, and But imagine again, what your local organizing would look like if there wasn't a dominant narrative and there was just people, this goes into the back to the dialogue thing to go full yeah. circle. Like if you were literally just dialoguing with your neighbors about how you wanted to locally organize your community it would be a completely different world than 
going to a, a county board of supervisors meeting or a school board meeting or one of these committee meetings and trying yeah. to convince these six or seven people on the board you know, to go against the state financing that they're sucking off off of for every decision that they make. I mean, um, it would just be a totally different world. And I don't think that we realize how much power these people have to create these narratives and then impose them Mm -hmm. uh, locally through this hierarchy. This is the patriarchal hierarchy. And just going back to the what's the solution? decentralization yeah like i don't care i mean it's funny when you were talking about how the 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 board members or the the local leaders would be looking through the past of of uh of these activists what i think is funny is is the uh is the people in the in the technocratic resistance going into the past of somebody like rfk jr or you know other members of the resistance finding one example of when maybe they had invested in in a you know in a fund that now invests in you know a company that's connected to the world economic forum or whatever and then going this person is controlled opposition or this per you know I mean, I hear that word controlled opposition thrown around. We, we hear it with the oh, truckers yeah. in Canada right now. Is the whole thing a fault? I mean, that's what, again, the post-truth world. Like, yeah. Well, there's like, definitely Russians in there, right? Those, those yeah, Russians right. have infiltrated the truckers. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, this is clown world. This is a, this is a COVID clown world. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, the only way to get through all of this is to be actually engaging in dialogue. And I think, honestly, having respect for people's intentions, again, is so important yeah. to me. It's like people can be wrong. And still be trying to do right by people, you know, by everybody else. And so, you know, again, have a dialogue with somebody that you have a disagreement with and see if you can show them your point of view and maybe they'll change their mind and maybe they won't, but you can't control that. So don't be attached, you know, and certainly the mudslinging about, about the controlled opposition and this and that, or this must be a false flag or that must be. I, it's just gets over the top and that's also completely disunifying and probably also fostered by these guys controlling the narrative. I mean, they, yeah. they love to see the infighting going on like this. It makes any kind of larger organizing, uh, completely impossible. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hopefully we can get to a place where people just start to be open-minded, a little less attached to their particular point of view and willing to, uh, engage with anybody else that is trying to set a boundary between their individuality and government power. I mean, this is, this is how I look at it. Like if you're for healthcare freedom, then great. Let's, let's go. I don't care if you took a vaccine or you believe in germ theory or whatever else you believe in. Like I've set a personal boundary that says I can make healthcare decisions for myself and you know, the government is pushing on that personal boundary. And for all others who feel that, that push, you know, and resent being treated unfairly. Uh, let's, let's push back, you know, let's stop well this. <laughs> well said. And, and I think the, the fact that um, we are here today, Doug, having dialogue um, yeah. and, and a nice long dialogue is a testament to how much we both value both the work of Derek Burroughs and Allison McDowell. I mean, exactly. I, I think it's, I think it's really important to say that they've both done really important work um, and this is not the easiest of conversations to have because um, it plays into personal aspects, I think, of both their lives that, you know, starts getting the emotions involved and, and really distracting sure. maybe from some of these bigger points. But I have learned a lot and I have seen a lot of value in this dialogue that we're having today. So um, are, are there concluding points or other places you'd like to direct people to your work and some of the things that you've got? Going? Sure. 
you know, I guess uh, I'd like to say that we all need to realize that we're all going through this healing process. Like, yeah. uh, you know, Allison and Derek both do great work and neither of them are perfect. Um, and so, and, and neither are we, you know, <laughs> like we we're all like just trying to evolve here as human beings. Um, and, and let's, uh, I think the important thing is to move forward in a way that can, that can raise awareness of our imperfections and have respect for each other, uh, that, that understands that everybody's, you know, trying to do the best they can. Um, this, these conflicts that are these inter inter movement conflicts that happen are just, that's not where the energy should be spent. The energy needs to be spent, you know, creating that boundary against the technocratic system and saying, I'm not going to live like this. Like, and let's figure out how to move forward from there and let's work together and let's help each other out. And let's turn this from a, from a, from an argument into an opportunity for healing. That's, that's what I'd love to do. Excellent. Um, well yeah. said. I well mean, that's <laughs> right. That's where we need to be going. And then the healthier we are, the stronger we become, the more powerful the movement is overall yeah. to actually set these healthy boundaries and tell these guys, you know, you can't treat us like this. Thanks, but no thanks. Absolutely. Well, cool. well, Doug, Doug McKenty, um, thank you so much for spending time with me today to, to get into this topic. I've really been itching to to have an extended conversation around this this feud and the larger topics right. that are that are involved with this and um i really hope people see the benefit of of dialogue and that yeah. more dialogue is 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 happening so um coming from northern california soon to be iowa it sounds like yeah from the from the libertarian perspective um and wanting to continue moving dialogue forward in a constructive way and i can uh let me let people know yeah. they can find my stuff at the shiftnow.com is the best place to go the website you know, and sign up for the newsletter. But I've also started this new blog and that's where I'm starting to get more and more of my own ideas out. So I hope people really check that out. And that's on yes. Substack at the Populist Papers. Um, and I'm trying to kind of bring this word populism back because under the Trump administration, <laughs> you know, the dominant narrative. Yeah. Uh, again, they're going to they're going to attack any idea that is actually threatening to them. I think that's why libertarianism has such a, a bad name. Uh, and both libertarianism and populism are called the far right, which is supposed to be like Nazism or national socialism or something. And it's actually none of those things. So I'll be writing more about that on the on the well, blogs. And as things kind of get more confusing and, and more obfuscation, I hate that word, uh, happens. Mm. It's more critical than ever to have people with clear thinking trying to order this stuff in whatever platform or sort of you know, medium feels most comfortable. So I look forward to reading more of your work, Doug, and we're going to have to talk again because I think um, things, things will continue evolving. So I will go ahead and and wrap this up and I'll make sure to include all the relevant links in the show notes as they say, but uh, thank you so much. I'll go ahead and just, let's see, I'll stop. All right. There you have it. Great conversation with Doug McKenty, a fellow podcaster, writer, Um, And overall, great person to have a long conversation with. So thank you, Doug, for joining me for that two-hour conversation. Um, Like I say, next week, I think I will be having Greg Sestero. I'm hoping. I have a one-part conversation already recorded um, when he was in here in Missoula promoting his movie uh, Miracle Valley. 
Um, so I'm hoping to do a, a second part. We'll see if that happens. Um, I'm the host here at ZoomCron, Travis Material. You can reach me at willskink at yahoo.com. That's W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K at yahoo.com. Don't get confused. William Skink used to be my pseudonym, and now it's my LLC. That's right, baby. So stay tuned next week. Next Tuesday, there should be another episode up of ZoomCron. Thanks for listening. Until next time.